The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Listener discretion is advised. In three, two, one. And rolling sound, quiet. Good day, good world. You're tuned to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, we get specific about films outside the big categories, and season one is the underwater domain of submarine movies. In today's episode, it's high drama and sizzling action at sea with one actor who owned 1990s cinema and another who defined films of the 70s. They are dreamy-eyed man on fire Denzel Washington and the gruff and grumbly grump Gene Hackman. In a film directed by action movie whiz-bang, the late Tony Scott, set your condition to 1SQ because right now on Subgenre, it's Crimson Tide. Joining me to talk about this cinematic tour de force via the magic of the interwebs is, as she would tell you, an unemployed writer who makes videos in her bathroom about weird animal fornication. I'm just kind of hoping she can explain TikTok to me. You may know her online as Charlotte A. Cavatica. I know her as Charlotte Moore. So many names, but an unmistakable person. Charlotte Moore. Hello, Charlotte. Ahoy, ahoy, Josh. Having known Charlotte for a long time, I have high expectations. I just want you, you know to know how long we have known each other, actually? How you long? Know, this is going to make you feel really old. Uh, we have known each other 10 years. Oh, no. Let's let's talk really quickly about, yeah. about submarine films. Now, are you a submarine movie fan? Do you watch submarine films? I'm glad you asked, Josh. No, I don't watch movies very much at all. So... <laughs> Which to me is a very odd <laughs> thing, just A, because yeah. I assume everyone does that because I do it, and B, because, and we'll, we'll save talking about this for later, but there's kind mm-hmm. of a pedigree involved in Charlotte and, and movies, so uh, I know maybe we should talk about that in a little bit. What do you think? Yes, I am uh, the shame of my family for this reason, actually. <laughs> and, yes. and, and real quick, the weird animal fornication videos, just to clarify yeah. for everyone, what, mm-hmm. what, what are we doing there? Uh, well, we're actually using the power of science to communicate uncomfortable but very real truths about the way animals get it on. And, this is, uh, and this the is kids on... love it. Can't get enough. <laughs> Can't get enough. And this is on the TikToks, am I right? This is on the TikToks. This is 60 seconds or less information about, so far, spiders, moths, couple couple other animals uh, get in there. We've had some weird discussion about centaurs, so they're not even necessarily real animals. I uh, I do it all, baby. Well, well, one day when I figure out how to use whatever technology you're using, you can you can show me the videos. In the meantime, I think it would be really interesting to have somebody who self-proclaimed wise is not a movie person tell me about the movie Crimson Tide. It would be interesting. <laughs> you want to do it? So let's do it. Let's do it. Crimson Tide is a high '90s movie with an entirely male cast doing entirely male things in an entirely small space. Uh, By entirely male things, I mean they're creating problems that they do not have to create uh, and then solving (laughs) them as violently as possible. Let me stop you right there and just say welcome to submarine movies. There is is a dearth of all-female submarine flicks. We need one. We don't have one. 
But yeah. this, this particular one, I mean, we'll cut it a little bit of slack. It came out in 1995. I think it was like May of 1995. So this is a tentpole movie in the 90s, right? We weren't mm-hmm. quite woke then. Uh, That's right. Has a cast that absolutely, well, I'm not going to talk about cast. Let's talk about the entire group of people who got together to make this movie. All guys, oh, yeah. All guys, by the way. Yeah, of all course. The, there's, there are two female humans in this film, and one of them is a child. And so... <laughs> This is true. That's true. And we get and, and we get rid of them in and, the first couple of minutes. And can I just say too, I'm still salty about the fact that we never got to see his daughter's levitation. Like I was excited about that. And well, the person we can blame for it. that here, the person we can blame for that is the director. Tony Scott directed this thing. And and if you are not familiar with Tony Scott, where have you been? Tony Scott is the director of such films as Top Gun, as Enemy of the State, uh, Spy Games, any sort of like high action movie that was kind of tinted yellow. Like that's Tony Scott. (laughs) Tony Scott, brother of Ridley Scott, the complete opposite, like super dark, you know, green Mm -hmm. tinted movies. So Michael Schiffer is the credited writer on this. Um, We're going to talk about some of the uncredited writing that was done on this by names that you may be familiar with, like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Towne. Oh yeah, I think I've heard those. You've heard those. Produced by Don Mm -hmm. Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, also of the Top Gun uh, connection, Pirates of the Caribbean. The cinematography in this thing, usually I don't get all the way this far down on the list, but cinematography by Darius Wolski, who did films like The Martian and Dark City. You've got Chris Levinson, who works with Tony Scott on a lot of movies, Top Gun included. Hans Zimmer did the music for this thing. Uh, Hans Zimmer of Inception and Blade Runner 2049, and actually won a Grammy for the Crimson uh, Tide soundtrack. And then you've got stars in it, like friggin' Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. Yeah, but what you've just described is a sausage fest. It is, but it's a really freaking talented sausage fest. It is. And then it is. Go, wait, wait, undeniably. The movie has Viggo Mortensen in it. But, you I, know. Okay, so that was, I was like, look at little baby Viggo Mortensen. Little baby I don't Viggo know how, Mortensen. I didn't know that he was in that. Yeah. Well, because I, I know how I didn't know that. It's because I don't know anything about yeah, film. But seen the movie. Uh, I was I was really excited to see see Vigo there. And alongside Vigo Mortensen, a a very svelte looking James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano of the Sopranos. Mm-hmm. This is a cast that is insane, and I want to talk a little bit more about this in a while. But the movie itself, like you said, it's 1995. It's kind of a picture of its times. It's 53 million dollar budget on this one. Which if you if you listen to the episode about the Hunt for Red October, in 90s dollars, in 90s dollars, that's insane. Like we talked yeah. about the Hunt for Red October being a 30 million dollar movie, and that movie had five sound stages at Paramount, and it had gimbaled sets, and it had the whole thing. This was nearly double that. And Good. my guess is that that nearly double that was to pay Gene Hackman. That's my guess. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I am, well, I can get into this later. Uh, I am engaged to a cinephile who has seen all of the submarine movies and also uh, speaks German and is in the, he knows all the things about all the boats. Why is, uh, why is he not on this podcast instead of you, Charlotte? That's I, I really wanted. don't know, other than the fact that he hates uh, speaking in public. He informed me that while the inside of the American, uh, yeah, Alabama is obviously larger than it would be in real life so that they could accommodate filming and such. Uh, The reproduction of the Russian submarine in that film is completely accurate. Uh, And so they must have spent money. I don't know what they, I don't know if it was a, 
if it was a prop or what they were doing, right. but uh, apparently like high level of accuracy. Yeah, too, yeah you just built submarines for these things. Out. That's what you did in the 90s. That's how we rolled. There was no, I guess. There was no digital stuff in the 90s. You just, you just built there submarines. Was, what are you talking about? There was no digital stuff in the there 90s. Was a, there was digital stuff, but there wasn't digital stuff like today. Like there was Jurassic Park in the 90s. I understand. And that was like the first one. We were getting our feet wet in the 90s. We, did, we hadn't quite escalated to the levels of today, but whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. It's I, fine. Okay. That, no, they, they, they built a thing. They built a thing, <laughs> obviously. Exactly. They built a very accurate thing, and I'm sure that cost some green. Is what I'm saying. It cost some green, but they made it. They uh, they made it back. It's it's grossed 107, uh, 157 million dollars worldwide to date, at least as reported to this point, and that maybe takes us to our feature presentation. This is our feature presentation, Crimson Tide. Uh, warning, spoilers ahead. If you don't like being told what went on in the movie, you are listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> in a nutshell, Crimson Tide is really kind of this combination of mutiny on the bounty in a submarine meets like a techno thriller. So you've got this, this salty submarine captain and this new executive officer squaring off in a mutiny and it's on a, a nuclear sub. That's the pitch, I'm sure. And that is what sold it. And, and that is exactly what the movie delivers. We start out at the beginning of this movie, Charlotte, with this quote that <laughs> is, both, <laughs> is both awesome and terrible. I, I what does it say? I can't even remember what it says. The three most powerful men in the world, the president of the United States, the president of the Russian Republic, and the captain of a U.S. nuclear and missile the captain submarine. of a U.S. nuclear and, submarine. And it's in an extremely 90s font. It's like that techno font that they use for anything that was supposed to involve computers in any way. It is. Which and, like, Mwah. And that font is on everything, everything. in this movie. It's on, mm -hmm. it's on the credits. It's mm -hmm. on the little that it's appears on the, at the bottom it's on the monitors, screen. It's on everything. the monitors. It's on it's everything. It's submarine font. It's yes. fantastic. And I, I it's really- It's crimson font. <laughs> Uh, we get we get a setup. I mean, it's both. We want to talk about things that are good and terrible, right? So this this quote <laughs> at the beginning, good and terrible. The thing that immediately follows it, which is a CNN reporter named Richard Valeriani, real guy by the way, um, yeah. reporting from an aircraft carrier. He says the aircraft carrier Foch actually was the French aircraft carrier Foch somewhere in the Mediterranean. Um, but basically, that that there's an insurgency in Russia, that things are going south, and that potentially Europe could be pulled into a war. Right, it's all exposition. It's all stuff we can. There's need a very to know. bad man who wants to get to the nuclear weapons. <laughs> That's right, Vladimir Redchenko. <laughs> Vladimir Redchenko. And it's okay. It's okay. Like it's it's exposition. You need it, but it's another one. But of honestly, those, who cares? Honestly, who cares? And <laughs> it's accompanied by this montage, which to me is like it's one of these. Yes great, terrible things. And the reason I think it's great is because it's very quick. You get it. You understand it's got a vibe to it. The reason it's terrible is because the footage that they choose to use in it includes like Vietnam era footage of like troops getting off a Jolly Green and like press kit uh, video of the the stealth fighter and some other stuff. It's just this. And then mishmash. like Bill Clinton is there. And Bill Clinton. It's, like it's a mishmash. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> um, but but at least it gives us the bad guy, which is Vladimir right. Redchenko. It's the only time we ever see him. But this is the bad one guy of the who bad blow guys. up the world. One of the, one bad, of guys. the bad guys. But the, the sort That's of right. existential bad guy. Yes. Right. Okay. Who we never, then we never see no, again. He's never back again. That's it. You get, <laughs> you get one shot at it and that's it. We never see him again. He's, he's if like, if you weren't paying attention during that sequence, you're f he's Kaiser Soze. He just, you, you hear about him, but, but you never, you never really see him. But what that does get us yeah. is to sort of the meat of the movie. And it starts in a very, again, 
this is just terrible, but terrible. It's not terrible, but wonderful. It's it's the little kid's birthday party. You've got our lead, Denzel Washington, playing Lieutenant Commander Hunter. He is there with uh, his buddy, Peter Weps. And everybody just calls him Weps because he's the weapons officer, played mm-hmm. by Viggo Mortensen. And in the middle of the little girl's birthday party, where there's a magician and levitation and other things, <laughs> phones start to ring and pagers start going off. And it looks like we may be. Can I can I just point out a detail that I know? Oh, yeah. That scene? Yeah. So they there's a the phone is ringing. Mm. Uh, Dental Washington goes to answer the phone and Viggo Mortensen is standing off to the side going, maybe it won't be that bad. And while of course, it's going to be that bad. And while Denzel Washington is on the phone, they show this close up of like the TV monitor next to the birthday cake. And the kids are with the the magician in a completely other room right now. What's going on with the birthday cake? Is The, the candles are lit. I noticed the exact same thing. It's not like an aromatic candle that's going to like provide ambiance. Those, those, the cake is going to be whacked. This is a waxy cake by the time some kids get to it. It, yeah. Set designer made that decision. Terrible. Uh, Fired immediately. They get it, but they get a call while the cake is being covered in wax and the daughter is being levitated. (laughs) No one is watching. They get a call. Everybody's got to come to the submarine base. We're having a problem. And we find out very shortly that that problem, once everybody gets to the submarine base, is that Radchenko, the Russian insurgent, is making noise, is rattling sabers, does not yet possess the nuclear launch codes, but they are afraid that he might. And so we are going to DEFCON 4. So DEFCON 4 is not bad because it's a high number. DEFCON 4 is good because it's a high number. DEFCON 1 is the one where everybody's screwed. DEFCON 5 is the least bad. That's right. DEFCON 1 is the nuclear weapons are here, the Holocaust is here. And I, as many people, I learned about the various DEFCONs through war games. So Right. Another movie right. which I am hoping in some season of subgenre to be able to to watch and maybe I'll have you back for war games as long as we're making you watch <laughs> yeah. movies with bad fonts and stuff in them. So we have set to DEFCON oh, yeah. 4. Oh my God, it's bad. So we've set to DEFCON 4. We're at the submarine base. The way we get Lieutenant Commander Hunter, Denzel Washington, and Captain Frank Ramsey, who we just now get to talk about, who is this hard scrabble, been driving submarines for 100 years sort of guy, is that his XO is exactly executive officer uh, has appendicitis and he needs someone to go out with him. And Hunter is uh, at the top of the list. A very short list. A very short list. He informs him. Yeah. You're, you're at the top yes. of the list. That's yes. Good Ramsey to know. makes sure to put Hunter in his place almost immediately. Right. Uh, they- which establishes, uh, if I may say this early on, it begins to establish already this sort of uh, push pull dichotomy between the white man in charge and the black guy who has to take orders from him. Right, right. away, the white man is like, just so you know, you're not that important mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. He gets the nod of approval from Ramsey, who is who is suspect of pretty much everything. He gets the nod of approval mm-hmm. because Ramsey has a dog. And the dog's name is Bear, and Bear is this little rat dog. But the dog gives the dog gives him the sniff of approval or whatever it is that Ramsey read, reads off of it. He mm-hmm. says, yep, you're my XO, let's go. The next scene on this thing is, it's a scene that I love. Every uh, sailor standing out next to the submarine at night. It's almost sort of like a triumph of the will looking, you know, set up with, with uh, Ramsey up on a stand. And he's, he's telling them about their mission and the sub. And he, he gives this speech where he calls them all little ducks, where I love little, little ducks. Which there's trouble in Russia. Not just because they're about to be on a submarine, but because they're in a soaking deluge. They're standing in the rain. Yeah. And you, you even feel bad for the dog. The dog's like, what the f- am I, am I out here? I didn't, I didn't contract for this. Uh, <laughs> 
and I, I I was impressed like whatever was involved to make that happen because it looked it looked truly miserable. Well, for for whatever reason too, there's welding going on above them. Like there's sparks that's fl- like the the sub isn't even ready to go. You finishing I guess, building the, the sub? Right, What's we're going building on? the sub. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to get on a sub that they were just finishing. Yeah, five no, minutes no, before I no. on it. This thing is supposed to descend to what depth now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not staying at a Best Western they just finished a few minutes no. ago. I'm not getting on the sub. No. It's like when you're about to get on an airplane and they're finishing pre-flighting the airplane and they like, you see them like get on the wing and put yeah, a rivet no, no. in and you're like, what No, we're not leaving now. <laughs> no, no. But you, I'll get on a boat. You get this wonderful moment where where Ramsey is yelling at the sailors are going to be on this boat and telling them that they have a very proud tradition. And what's the name of this sub? It's the USS Alabama. And what do we say? We say, go Bama, roll tide. Roll tide. Roll tide. I don't do military or sports, so I don't understand what that means. And that's both. <laughs> and, that's, and that is both. If you are an Alabama football fan, which I'm not going to say whether I am or I'm not, I'm not. The, <laughs> if, if you know Bama, that is the call. Go Bama, roll tide. I uh, don't know Bama, and I know that that is the call. Yeah, there you like, go. So yeah. we, we yell. We yell. It's a great moment. It's this big cinematic moment. It's one you can tell that, like, it's a set piece that the script was written around, but it works. Everybody runs aboard the boat, which, by the way, we're, we're calling it a boat, not a ship. You call submarines boats, not ships. That's correct. And, that is correct. And uh, uh, the chief of the boat, um, who is a an, a an actor named, and I... I'm going to get his last name wrong, but it's it's George Zunza, I think is his last name, plays Cobb, chief of the boat, who is one of my favorite actors in this entire film. I love him. First of all, and I just want to say, it's it's like universally true that whoever the chief is in a given franchise or film, the chief is always the best character. Like this was true in Star Trek. This was true in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, the chief is just always like the hard scrabble, dark humor guy who really runs this show. And that was absolutely true in this film as well. He is the guy who, if you had to like stand someone there and and use them as sort of the central pillar of a, of a building and build the building around them because you were certain yeah. that they were not going to move. That's this guy. If you don't have the chief on your side, you got nothing. You got nothing. And There's nothing else you can do. You've got, you know, you said, every, okay, everybody on the boats and they all run on the boats. And then you've got, you've got uh, a cob with his hand on the shoulder of this poor helmsman um, played by an actor named Christopher Burt. And it's one of my, it's, it's another one of my favorite shots in the movie because you get in that moment on his face, just the sheer terror that a person put in charge of, of driving. It's because you think like computers do this. No, it isn't. There's a dude with a steering wheel. <laughs> That drives the sub and and makes it go up yeah. and down, and that's this guy, and he's just sweating buckets. I don't. I, I, I watch so. these. I think movies. everyone on the submarine has a hard job. I watch these movies Probably. and I look at my job and go, "Yeah, okay, no, I don't. Yeah. I don't work for a living." There's an important scene right before the sub dives when Ramsey and Hunter are having cigars on. I, I don't know if it's like the the bow of the. I don't know the anatomy of the submarine, but they're on the They're outside watching the sunset. And like Ramsey has this sort of nice final moment where he's looking at the sunset and he's like, this is my favorite part. And there's this sort of like moment of humanity with him. And he passes Hunter the cigar and says, well, you got to, this is the ritual. You got to have this before we do the thing. And so Hunter's, he smokes a cigar and it's his first one. And it's like, but they have this sort of like bonding moment where it is established. Ramsey basically says to him, if you don't like the cigar, you don't have to act like you do. You don't ever have to kiss my ass. Don't tell me what you think I want to hear. You need to have dissension and honesty if this thing is going to work. And Hunter sort of seems to like, he appreciates that. He gives him this sort of like tacit respect, like, I don't know what the, why is everyone so mad about this guy? What's wrong with this guy? 
So that's where it seems like everything's gonna be fine. Then they go below. And that scene where we have had this moment of connection between the two of them is put to its first test. And this is at dinner where they are chatting about nuclear war. Ramsey is basically cool with nuclear war um, and ask Hunter what his opinion is. And after a a little bit of hemming and hawing, uh, Hunter offers his opinion. And it's also important to note that Hunter's opinion is another schism between these two men is that Hunter is highly educated. He come he doesn't come from Annapolis. He comes from Harvard. And Ramsey is very much like he's a career guy. Everything that he's learned has been in war. He was in the Gulf War. He was in Vietnam. All of the respect that he's earned has been as a soldier. He's and had his he's head up his quite... ass driving ships is what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's not really sure how he feels about this like white collar, spoiled guy coming from the Ivy Leagues. And so now Hunter offers his opinion as an intellectual. Right. Uh, and he at first he even dodges the question. Really, he doesn't fully answer it. And then basically says that, well, I don't know if it's at that scene where he says that war is the enemy, yeah. essentially. The but, true enemy yeah. is war itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. which is the last answer that Ramsey wants. You, you can, you know, there's the crickets and the silence in the room from the other officers. Yeah. All, all the other going. officers are like, Ooh. <laughs> and it's the first exposure. I think it's important to, to also say that this is probably the first exposure of all of those officers or majority of those officers to the divergent viewpoints of these two people, yes. which will come into play later. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So then the font appears, it's day three, <laughs> and we get our we get our first action piece. And the first thing to go wrong in the sub, there's gonna be a lot of things that go wrong in this sub. The first thing to go wrong in the sub, there's a fire in the galley. Hunter is donning his fire suit. He's diving through flames to stop this thing and put it out because fire on a sub, that's not good. That's bad. That's bad. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but Ramsey, Ramsey doesn't see it that way. Ramsey sees this as a moment to run a missile drill. That's right. And his justification for that is that war happens whenever war happens. The bad guys aren't going to pick an opportune, comfortable moment to strike. So you have to be ready at any time, which I appreciate that line of thinking. And I will say to his credit, Ramsey cuts the drill short as soon as he learns that uh, the the cook has suffered uh, a cardiac episode. Yeah. And he goes and they try to tend to him, but he's already passed. Yeah. And, Hunt, uh, and, and Hunter is yeah. Hunter's objecting all the way up to this point. He's right. Put, he's put out the fire. He has to run to the bridge because it's his job to repeat the commands of the captain uh, into the microphone. Or he takes some flack for being late. Right. For uh, being five seconds late. Yeah. Good of you to join us, Mr. Hunter. Right. That's right. As he's been fighting the fire. He objects. Ramsey says this is not the time. They run a missile drill. We as an audience get to see in that moment the sort of procedure of how what you would call an EAM authentication happens. And that's basically when they receive a radio message it's called an EAM transmission. That's big information coming through from from headquarters, from the president, and they have to authenticate it, make sure that it's real, and they go through a whole procedure to do that. This is our first exposure to that. And right. and so we, we as an audience get to see how this plays out, which is going to come into effect uh, later on. As, as you mentioned, once Petty Officer Marichek, uh has a cardiac event, Marichek dies, unfortunately, but immediately afterwards, Ramsey and Hunter go off to Ramsey's quarters and have this heart-to-heart. By heart-to-heart, you mean dick-measuring contest. Dick-measuring contest. But, but basically, <laughs> basically Ramsey's saying, what did you think? Did you, I know you didn't want me doing it at that time, but did you think that I was just some sort of cowboy going yeehaw and letting everybody die? I wasn't. I was it's taking a rhetorical advantage question. of the situation. Uh, but the thing is, Ramsey wasn't really asking him so much as telling him. So, so Ramsey basically says to him, 
I observed that you did not approve of what I did up there. And Hunter says, no, I, I didn't. And Ramsey said, that's fine. Uh, but let me tell you why I did it. So he explains to him, like, you have to do this because war happens when war happens, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and if you disagree with me, that's your prerogative. But you need to disagree with me in private because the men need to see a unified front in a crisis situation. But he does it in such a way where he makes it very clear to Hunter that, like, in fact, Ramsey does not welcome his dissension, yeah. whether in private or in public. He he doesn't ask him questions. He gives him information and expects him to comply. And he expects him to comply in public, uh, which Hunter bristles at, which is in the next thing. He says, yes, sir. Very clear. Aye, aye, Captain. And yeah. then the very next thing we see is him just beating the ever-loving shit. <laughs> yeah, you got You got to take out your frustration somewhere. And if you can't punch, mm -hmm. punch the captain, then you, you do a boxing montage. And that's what happens here with like nice red lights and blue lights. And we're punching and we're sweating. And we're he's ba it's basically an audition for a few years later when he was in the hurricane. Right. This this was right. <laughs> this was him doing that in advance. Um, but he goes down and, and this is where we get to to find out about sort of the relationship between Hunter and, Hunter and, and Webs. Webs. Right. Yeah. And, and who Webs is as a person, which essentially is a fence writer. He's a, a middleman who can see both sides. I call it a fence writer, but he's the diplomat. He can see both sides of, of a problem. The problem is that he gets washed from one side to the other very easily. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Without having a position, he, it's not that he's not unprincipled. No. Necessarily. It's not. He, and he, I guess on the, the D and D alignment chart, he's like uh perfectly lawfully neutral. He really has no, uh, he, he's neither good nor evil. Yeah. Uh, he's perfectly objective. And that's ultimately to the detriment of many. But his his principles are guided primarily just by following the letter of the law. Like if you're perfectly objective and you don't have an emotional stake, you follow the rules as they're written. And it's not that he thinks that Hunter doesn't have a grievance because he does. And Hunter's his friend and he wants to support him. Uh, but his position is, look, Ramsey has a certain point of view too. He's been doing this for a long time. If you want to make things right with him, you gotta, you gotta play the game a little bit. Right. Uh, right. You gotta put your own ego aside. To me, Weps is sort of the unfortunate version of Cobb, right? Cobb, yeah. al Cobb also does things by the letter, but Cobb seems to do it with a firmer set of principles somehow. I'm not quite sure how to, how to slice that onion, but, yeah. but they, they both are sort of doing it in the same way, just approaching it differently. Cobb has a sense of honor i think that mm. web it's not and it's not that webs is dishonorable but Cobbs is like this old school like sort of sort of samurai honor i guess like yeah. he is personal Cobb is personally affronted when the rules aren't followed we can talk there's a really great example of that later obviously when when hunter ends up yeah. taking over the ship but there's a great example of i think that might illustrate the difference between those two men well this whole day three incident is really just prologue to what happens on day six it's all set up for what comes three days later when the alabama gets an eam for real we've seen the eam and how it plays out on day three and how that whole process is supposed to go when it goes correctly and on day six, we receive an EAM for real, which lets the sub know that the launch codes, which Radchenko was not supposed to be able to crack, he has cracked. That means that the Russian insurgents could launch missiles at the U.S., uh, so we are setting from DEFCON 4. Or Japan or, yeah. Yeah, Japan or the U.S. places. Yep. Yeah, anywhere is yeah. not good. Yeah, and, nowhere and, is good. <laughs> and so we set to DEFCON 3. <laughs> 
The last time this happened, is, as we were informed, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is equal to the worst we've ever been, as in close to, to all-out nuclear war, is, is day six on this sub. This does not have good effects on the crew. Um, so about no. five days later on day 11, we get this moment, which you can refer to as the Silver Surfer con- uh, conversation. With her. I love this. Uh, isn't this great? I love A this. couple of crew members blow yeah. up at each other. Uh, Hunter stops one of them, uh, whose name is Rivetti. He's an he's a officer. Uh, first class, and it's played by an actor named Danny Nucci, one of my favorite guys in the film. I'm going to say that a lot, but one of my favorite guys in the film. Yeah. And we find out, yeah. we find out what their conversation was about, and it was about comic books. Hunters is a keen observer of human behavior, and he recognizes that this is a moment where the crew needs moral support. And he then goes to Ramsey and Hunter, who clearly feels you can sort of see through his mannerisms, feels like this might be another good bonding moment where he and Ramsey have an understanding. He says, I think uh, the crew's morale is suffering. They could really use something to cheer them up a little bit, which would make them more efficient, which would improve things shipwide. It would be better for everybody if the crew was happy. So Ramsey seems to concur and goes over to the intercom and hops on and says, hey, everybody, are you sad? Well, if you're sad, you can go ahead and drown yourselves because we're at war, people, and we don't have time for your sadness, you little bitch boys. And he hangs up the intercom and he turns to Hunter and he says, don't basically he says, don't waste my time. And uh, he storms off. And uh, that's that's when Hunter feels like. Hmm, maybe I can't trust this guy. That is also the moment where, just from an acting point of view, you get, there are people who can do death looks, you know, mm-hmm. the, the death stares, and oh. you get the coldest death oh. stare from Ramsey, who just goes from this sort of put-on smile and drops the whole thing and just bores lasers mm-hmm. right through Hunter. Mm-hmm. And, but, and the way that, uh, Denzel Washington reacts this and sort of the same way in a very like understated, just the tension in his neck goes, just the whole like, okay. So it's like that. It's like that. Okay, bitch. And then like, <laughs> and it's all, it's all nonverbals. And you can see there's a bit of like men in the background yeah. who are watching this interaction. And as soon as Ramsey turns around, they're all like, no, we're cool. We're working. Yeah, try we're not working. To what, no. we're... <laughs> we love sailoring. It's so great. <laughs> Or <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. We have a we have a crew that is on edge. We have a captain who is very unconcerned with that. We have a potential situation going on topside with missiles that could launch any moment. We're at DEFCON three, and we've got Hunter who is kind of stuck beneath the thumb of the captain having to put up with this, but at the same time is starting to to fray at the seams a little bit about what's going on, which takes mm-hmm. us to the action at day 12. Boop, 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 boop. A sonarman, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the sonar compartment in, from this point forward in the movie, but one of the sonarmen hears a Russian sub. So what they know is Radchenko's forces control a couple of subs. They don't know which ones, they don't know where they are, but they know that Radchenko's forces control them. And so maybe this is one of them, maybe it isn't. So what do we do when we hear a sub out in the water? We go to battle stations, we dive the sub, and Rivetti, the guy from the the Silver Surfer comic book uh, conversation, works to find out who this sub is. And it's right that moment when we get an EAM. And they do authenticate it. You never want them to be authentic, but this one turns out to be authentic. And, alas. And by alas, and by gosh, if it doesn't say that we are at DEFCON 2, 
that the launch codes have been compromised, that the missiles are being fueled, that they will be set to launch in X amount of minutes, and the Alabama has been ordered to do what they are supposed to do, which is launch nuclear weapons. Yeah, and what we've learned is that from the time fueling begins to the time the missiles can be launched is about one hour. So uh, once once that's that's as long now as the Alabama has to get to launch position. And in order to get to launch position, it has to dive further. So it begins submerging and it begins proceeding towards its target. And yes, it's then not, or at least not long after that, they receive another EAM. And in the meantime, while you know, we're going back and forth between these two conflicts that are happening, outside that mystery sub gets identified. It's a Russian Akula class hunter killer sub. It's it's a bad guy, uh, you know, not bad not news bears. Bad news bears. And it could be Rachenko's. It could be one of them. They still don't know that, but it disappears. And that's never good. One minute you saw the sub that could blow you up, the next minute it disappeared and you can't find it. You don't it. like to not see the sub that could you blow you up. You gotta see the sub that's gonna blow you up. So this complicates the position, which is that we've got missiles to launch, but there's a a potential uh, sub out there trying to kill us, which is motivating Ramsey to do things fast and to to get them done. The problem that kind of slows it down, I mean, not that, you know, we have to launch a nuclear missile isn't a problem. The problem to, to achieving that goal, which this sub is designed to do, is that another EAM comes in. Right. This one, unfortunately, has a little problem. Because the sub has to submerge to a certain depth in order to be action ready, it is too far below the surface to receive radio transmissions reliably. So it receives only part of the message. Right. So they not only can't read it, but they can't verify its authenticity. Right. All they know is that it's an EAM. And it begins to say something like important, you know, like right. they know that the next <laughs> that the next few words are pertaining to this very particular conflict and that it is going to tell them to either go or stop. The next few words are vital. Stop. De- <laughs> stop def- or go. Definitely don't dot, dot, dot. Uh, That's right. The only real way to get this message because they are too deep is to do what's called floating the buoy, which is what it sounds like. You, you send a buoy out the side of the submarine. It floats to the surface. It has a cable attached to it. When it pops the top of the surface, it's able to receive the message. You get the EAM and everybody knows whether or not we need to nuke the world. And at first all goes well. All goes well at first, as as things tend to do, and then. And then the buoy, so the buoy is, uh, it's like a winch, all its cable is like wrapped around a coil. Right. And as the buoy is ascending, it gets stuck. It gets stuck. And it makes a horrible grating sound. And as all of you kids who paid attention in science knows, sound travels beautifully through water. Whales kind of need it to communicate through one another. So it makes this grating, horrible sound. Uh, and they stop it. They stop the winch. And for a minute, it seems like everything's fine. And then... And then the Akula reappears on the radar because it's heard their horrible screeching oh, yeah. sound. There's no way you're not hearing that. It's yeah. It's it's everywhere in the water for hundreds of it's miles. Everywhere. And uh, it's it. got two missiles trained right on them. They immediately know where the Alabama is. Obviously, we find out at this moment it is a bad sub. Turns toward. It's tor- not good. It's not good. Turns <laughs> toward. Fires torpedoes. And Alabama is forced to evade. They're able to get away from the first one, not so much the second. It doesn't hit them, but it explodes nearby, causes a bit of damage. Not good. Um, they can't send the buoy up. They never get the rest of the message. They can't because that the cable that's attached to that buoy, even though the winch is stopped at all, stopped. the cable's been severed. There is now no yeah. way to float the buoy ever. And uh, they go to Ramsey and say, we have this message that was cut off. What do you want to do? And he says, that's not a message. That's a message. That's nothing. That's nothing. We have to work very pragmatically. 
He says, we have to work with the orders that we have. And essentially that's by the book. He's not wrong. He says, we, we don't have the luxury of guessing what these next orders would be. Regulations tell us we have to act on the orders that we have. And the orders that we have say that we need to proceed to depth and prepare to launch. The problem, as Hunter is pointing out, though, <laughs> is that it's basically like a castle ah moment, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's something that may or may not be, you know, it could be an order that says, you know, thumbs up, guys, go ahead and fire the nukes. Or it could be an order that says there was a computer glitch, like somebody hacked the account. We... Please don't launch the <laughs> nuclear missile. It could That's be right. that. As of this moment, they are Schrodinger submarine. They are a Heisenberg uncertainty submarine. And it is Hunter's position that while he agrees that the orders that they have are the only ones that they can verify, if they're wrong, they could start a global thermonuclear war that could be avoided if they would only figure out a way to ascend and get the totality of the message, which, which Ramsey is not having. Not, not willing Because to he do. knows that the Akula is still out there ready to blow them to smithereens. I think it's partially that. To me, it's almost- Oh, he just wants to blow them up. He oh, to, he absolutely just wants to blow them up. He wants to launch a missile. That's what <laughs> yeah, he has done. Absolutely. He, yeah. he he basically has blue balls for firing a missile. He's done this yeah. for, for you know 25 years or whatever, just driving around in a mm-hmm. boat that's meant to launch a missile. And all of those 25 years, someone has not given him permission to do so. And, mm-hmm. and in this moment, somebody said- yeah, okay, fire the missile. And he's like, yeah. He has a whole monologue earlier where, you know, he says basically like, I'm not a Harvard guy. They put the button in front of me and I push the button. Mm-hmm. And now is his moment to push the button for fuck's sake. He's an ideologue. He believes in good guys and bad guys. He gives the whole Alabama speech at the beginning. Like he, wa- he it's not that he loves war. He loves victory. He believes yeah. in heroes. He believes in good and evil. He believes that this guy Rodchenko is evil. And the best way to stop him is by throwing a nuke at him before Rodchenko can be the one who throws the nukes. Like oh. that's how he solves problems. That's he how he solves with a problems. Big hammer. What stops this from happening, what sort of stops everything in its tracks is exactly why I watch submarine movies. The thing that does it for me about sub movies is lingo and chain of command. And there is procedure. There's Mm -hmm. this very, very spelled out rigid procedure that happens that basically one thing happens here and another person repeats it. So you have redundancy so that you make sure that it's not just one person calling the shots, that there is an understanding throughout the entire boat about what's happening. So one of the big things of an exo's job is when the captain says something over the intercom, over the one SQ, Mm -hmm. immediately the exo repeats exactly that. So the crew understands that there are two people who are in charge, who both agree that this is the thing you got to do. And in this moment, Hunter makes the decision he's not going to do it. A motif of this film, if there could be one to exist, is the concept, I think, of concurrence, where concurrence starts, where concurrence ends, the procedure even for verifying the authenticity of an EAM. You need two guys to, one looks at the EAM and reads off the code, the other one looks at the code that's already on the ship, on the key, and verifies that they're the same, once as I concur, then the XO has to concur with them, and then the captain has to concur with him. And where it all falls apart is when concurrence stops. And this is the moment where they can no longer concur. And reacting within the bounds of his character, Ramsey looks at this not as a dispute over procedure, but as a mutiny. Right. This yes, is and a personal affront. A personal affront. This is his kingdom, yeah. and how dare you? The new guy, Ivy League, young never seen action. You're going to come on my boat and tell me how to do my job. If you're not with us, 
You're with them. And Ramsey tries to have him thrown to the brig. But who stops that? Cobb. Love Cobb. That's right. Cobb, he's not having it. Cobb won't uh, have it. And, and it's not and not because, you know, he gets this line where he's like, you know, please, Captain, this is not the way to do things. You can't arrest him for mutiny without there being, you know, agreement, basically agreement between the both of them that there is mutiny. So he, he, said, he, he explains to the captain that the EXO's job is not to concur just for its own sake. The, the EXO's job is basically to act as a check and balance. Yeah against the power of the captain. He says, Captain, this is why we have an XO, because we can't have a dictator calling the shots on the ship. And at that point, Hunter recognizes his moment and steps up and says, like, no, Captain, tis you who will be thrown in the brig this day. Uh, and Cobb supports him. Which is one of those little interesting quirks of sort of the Captain-XO relationship is that the executive officer has the authority if he feels that the captain is derelict in duty, if he feels that the captain is doing things against procedure, he has the ability to remove the captain from command and install himself as commander. Now, it's one of those things that doesn't happen very much that we are aware of just because there are really big ramifications to that. But it, it is an interesting quirk. It's basically like, what is it, the 25th Amendment of being on a I was just about submarine. to say that. Yeah. It's, it was just about, yeah, it's the, it's the 25th Amendment. He doesn't need the support of Congress. It's just no, no. And, and and Cobb supports him in that moment. And then after Ramsey, he, he doesn't go to the break. He's taken back, he goes to, back to his state room. room. Yeah, he's locked, he goes he's back locked to his state room and his dog. Uh, and of course, at that moment, that is when Hunter steps up to Cobb, trying to build a relationship and says, thank you. And Cobb says, F- you, because I didn't do it for you. I did it because the rules were broken. I don't want your thanks. You've now created chaos on this ship. But even in that chaos with Ramsey being led away by by armed guards to go back to his stateroom, Ramsey civilly, for the most part, takes his captain's missile key off of his neck, which is the thing that he Mm -hmm. has to put in the console in order to launch the missiles, hands it to Hunter, essentially Mm -hmm. giving him command. He turns it over. Because even Ramsey is brought up in this chain of command of this is how things go. He doesn't do it because he wants to. It just seems like there is no other option. That's what you do. It is for the moment a peaceful transfer of power. But in hindsight, what Ramsey has recognized is that he has lost the battle, not the war. Right. So he concedes this one. And he basically rubs his hands together internally and says, I'll get you next time, Gadget, and goes down to his stateroom and immediately pulls Hunter's file and starts trying to figure out ways to get out of this. He does not, in fact, go quietly. No, he's and he's a and he's a great villain because of that. Yeah. He's he's the villain that, like you said, doesn't just keep pushing forward and pushing forward and pushing forward. He attacks and then retreats, attacks and then retreats. Yeah, that's right. And he's and, down but not out. And so, be careful what you wish for, because uh, you know, I guess although he didn't wish for it, Hunter has taken over as commander of the ship. Looks around the bridge and says, "Does anybody disagree with this?" If you do, relieve yourself of duty right now. He's yep. still trying to be a man of the people. That's right. And nobody steps up. Everybody says, yep, we'll go along with this. And they do. The problem is it's right about that point that he's taken over the ship that the Akula reappears. Remember the disappearing ship? He's back. And actually, I think Ramsey's parting words to Hunter are, you're not ready to make the tough decision. And now Hunter has a very tough decision. The Akula's back and it's mad. And it's, they have no way to call for help. It's mad. <laughs> and it immediately, it finds them. It's been waiting there the whole time. It finds them. It fires. There, you know, it's an action sequence. There's evasive maneuvers. There's countermeasures that are launched. Uh, the Alabama uh, manages to get out of the way as best it can of the torpedoes that are out there, not allowing them to arm in time. Gets and far- it fires back. And it fires back. 
and blows the Akula. Blows it to hell. Blows it to hell. Boom. Beautiful. And one of the film's few actual action sequences. Yes. It really just obliterates it in a gorgeous underwater explosion. And you get this wonderful sense, sort of like also, as was also in Hunt for Red October, uh, you get a sense of the motion where mm-hmm. they have these they just set- shake the hell out of that camera cameras shaking <laughs> the floors are tilting at like you know 60 degree angles and stuff as things are going up and down and it's just it's and you it's feel beautiful. very aware of the claustrophobia of this moment where they're underwater they're under like a thousand feet of water at this point any weaknesses in the hull of that ship means instant implosion and death yeah. there's nowhere to go you get as an audience, I think, because you've had this buildup of the, you know, the quote unquote, the mutiny and everything that has happened. When they do have this moment of blowing up the Akula, it's this huge release. There's this wonderful score that's underneath it. People are throwing fists in the air and screenwriting 101 kicks in. And it's right at that moment where it looks like Is it everything. the 45 minute mark? It's, it's, it's gotta be. It's gotta be right about the 45 <laughs> minute mark. Everything has gone right for a second and a half. And it's right then that our sonar guy, Rivetti, realizes that there is still a torpedo in the water, that the Akula must have gotten one off right before they were destroyed. It is too close for them to evade. They are going to get hit. And though they don't, I don't think they take a direct hit. They manage to swerve just enough where they take it off the side. In some ways, it's almost worse. Yeah. They get the full, like, kinetic force of this thing off to the side uh, and then nothing good happens. Nothing good happens. And the worst, I mean, there's there's really bad stuff that happens, but the worst part as a whole and the problem that we're going to have to solve in the next couple of minutes is that explosion stops the screw from turning. There's no propulsion. This thing cannot go forward. And what happens in a boat that's taking on water when you can't move, you begin to sink. And the ship can only go to, if memory serves, about eight, I think it's 1,850 feet. Hull crush depth, they call it, which is an amazing, an amazing term. It strikes a visual. Yes. And so now they've got guys down in the down in the bilge trying to figure out how to stop the constant flow of water. Yeah. The whole uh, bottom of the ship is filling with water. And uh, fr- I guess the front of it, the forward bilge bay. So basically, we're, we're going nose down towards the bottom of the ocean. Right. Yeah. They've got no power. They've got no radio. They've got no controls. They've got nothing. They've got guys in a hole trying to bail water out of the ship that's already underwater. It doesn't uh, sound good. not good. And eventually Hunter is going to have to make another hard call well, about this. Yeah, and it's it's almost made for him in that you've got this entire uh, forward bay that's filling with water. You've got a ticking clock by way of this little counter on the bridge that's telling you how long until we reach hull crush depth, 1850, and it's counting there very quickly. And the only way to save the boat without propulsion, uh, or at least to slow the descent is to seal off that bay before it floods the entire rest of the ship. And who's who's And they've got three they've got three guys down in the bay and they send Ricky Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder. Uh, little baby Ricky Schroeder. Build as runs Rick down. Schroeder. Build as Rick Schroeder. Rick Schroeder goes down to tell his friends to get the fuck out of there yep. before they have to close it up. And his friends are committed to the bit. They're prepared to go down with their boat. And uh, so they're doing their best to turn off the flow of water. And eventually, with Cobb standing over his shoulder going, sir, you've got to close the hatch, uh, Hunter eventually makes the hard decision to close the hatch. And Ricky Schroeder's got to be the one to do it. Closes the hatch and drowns his friends. And the ship slows enough for the guys in power to get it back online. And gradually, they get their nose up and begin to ascent and uh, but nobody's nobody's excited anymore nobody's excited this is the lowest 
Now we're going to go lower. Literally. We're, we're really going to go lower. But this, this is the moment where at least for, for the crew and sort of trusting in Hunter as a potential replacement uh, for Ramsey, this is the moment where there is daylight that starts to develop between, between them. And that seems like a good time to take a break. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point, we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name, Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at kabonki.com. That's kabunki.com. Kabunki. Com. Kabunki. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. You're listening to Subgenre. I am here with Charlotte Moore talking about Crimson Tide and any other thing we can think of. How are you doing, Charlotte? I'm great, Josh. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine, I think. Ask me again in another 15 minutes and we'll see if that's changed. <laughs> Biology is a hell of a drug. Uh, Did you realize that your show is called Sub Genre? No, really? Sub Genre. That's pretty good. I was being clever. Uh, It's going to be awkward when you start doing movies that have nothing to do with submarines. Maybe. I've had some alcohol. The bar is open. Let's get back to talking about plot. We left off in a really precarious position, which was we had had the boat sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Ricky Schroeder had to seal the hatch so that uh, the entire kill his friends. Right. Had to kill his friends. Um, Now he's NYPD blue. Yeah. Thank you, Silver Spoons, for doing that. And now we have an opportunity for the people who weren't 100% on board with Hunter taking over as captain to play that out. And that kind of starts and ends with uh, James Gandolfini's character, Lieutenant Bobby Doherty, who makes his way down to Ramsey's quarters where Ramsey is under house arrest and basically says, Captain, give me an order. That moment where Gandolfini uh, commits himself to liberating the captain was when I was like, of course, you know, I was watching this movie very fresh and I was just like, yeah, of course, Gandolfini's the, the piece of shit. Who didn't see that coming? Why didn't I see that coming? And he goes down and he like bullies his way physically past the two guys guarding the stateroom and then goes in and tells the captain, like, you want me to go up and get some guys? Because I'll get some guys. I, I, I know a few guys. I know, I know a few some guys. guys. And, yeah. and captain's down for it. He knew that Doherty would be here eventually and tells Doherty that the key to this whole thing is Webs. Webs is the guy who, who I need. He's sort of the other end of this nuclear launch equation. You need the captain to turn the key and you need WEPS to, to push the button. And if those two things happen together, then the missiles launch. And so we got to get WEPS or this thing doesn't work. And so Gandolfini goes about gathering all of the different officers that he can trust that he thinks are, are behind the captain and not behind Hunter. They manage to basically browbeat WEPS into joining them. Yeah, and it's an agonizing scene. It really, it's tough. And it was me going, Vigo, no, don't do it. Vigo, Vigo, no. Like I lo- and it was me talking to Vigo, not even to Wes. Like just 
Vigo, do the right thing. And I, and there's this moment where it really see, he resists and resists and he, he tries to use logic on them. He says that's right. not how the regulations work. Then he tries to sort of emotionally persuade them or he just basically just like, guys, I'm not comfortable with this. And, but you can tell that he is such a peacemaker. He wants to do anything for the chaos to end. And so he does this calculus where eventually he, he makes a decision where it's like, all right, if I go, if, if I do this hard thing now, maybe the mayhem will stop. Right. And so he tries to give the guys a, another reason to persuade him. And so after saying no, 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 then he says, well, what, what would you even do? How would you even do it? And the guys say, here's how we would do it. This is what we do. And he says, fine, I'm on board. Yeah. And, and you can tell it just burns up a piece of his soul. And he knows that he's he's betraying his friend. And the additional reason you need Weps, by the way, is because Weps has the key ring. The, yeah. the, the keys that open the small arms locker where where the guns are. You know, you That's right. You need those. You're going to storm. And the they go and they get all the guns except for Weps. Weps, is, he is offered a gun and he doesn't take it. The weapons guy is the guy who doesn't take the weapon. That's right. I really. That's right. Mm-hmm. And and uh, now that we are now that we have an armed soprano and and all of his all of his <laughs> people to go with and him, all of his goons all of his goons they they <laughs> do they head towards the bridge to storm the bridge and take back the ship. Meanwhile, up on the bridge. Meanwhile, Hunter, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Hunter has a sixth sense. He knows that things don't feel right. People aren't where they're supposed to be. He thinks, okay, the storm is coming. What can I do to sort of play chess in, in this moment? And that's where he finds his best buddy, Rivetti. He gives Rivetti the keys and he says, here's what I need you to do. Right. And then he sends Rivetti off on a mission. Right. Which we don't know yet. We, we have no idea right. what that is yet because at that moment, we're back in Sonar with another one of what I think is just an insanely good kind of understated performance by a second level actor in this film. We have to look up the way. Can we pause this? We got to look up this. We got to look up who this guy is. Oh, I can tell you who this guy is. So oh, this who is, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a guy named Lillo Brancato. I think he's billed as Lillo Brancato Jr. in the film. Lillo Brancato is an interesting dude because he was in Crimson Tide. It was like his third movie, I think. He ends up in another Tony Scott movie called Enemy of the State. He ends up in The Sopranos playing a character named uh, Matt Bevilacqua. And... Somewhere along the line in here, and I can't quite pinpoint where it is. I'll have to look it back up. If I have my story right, he becomes part of an actual crime. Um, he is as 2005. He's arrested and hospitalized after he and a friend were shot by an off-duty like NYPD officer while they were committing a burglary. Oh yes. no! Yes. So, dude is. Oh. Yeah, dude is dude is is committing a burglary with his buddy. His buddy is armed, fires at the officer, kills the officer, and the buddy is sentenced to life in prison. And Lilla Brancato, he doesn't have a gun, but he's also shot. He's in critical condition, and then he is uh, convicted of attempted burglary, and he got ten years in prison for it. It's this amazing uh... kind of a story, and it's a sad story because you can tell watching this guy. In, in the two scenes he has, like he really only he's has so two scenes. Good. He's so good. He's so good. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly where in the chronology of the film it's right about now. It's right about now. He's fixing, he's trying to fix this radio. And it's, he's sweating over it. He's trying to do these, like this fine motor yeah. dexterity. Yeah. Uh, and he knows the clock is ticking. He's got all of his guys uh, on it. And that's when Hunter shows up. And says, Wait, I need you to fix the radio. 
And he says, I, I, ah, ah, he, he's choking. He's losing his nerve. And Hunter says to Vossler, did you ever watch Star Trek? And Vossler says, yeah, 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 I watched Star Trek. And Hunter says, you know, we're Kirk. There's that one episode, that one episode. No Come one on. Said. It's like all the episodes. <laughs> Kirk. It's basically Kirk the plot to, of Star Trek. <laughs> Kirk comes to Scotty and says, I need, I need more power. And Scotty says, I can't give you any more power, Captain. And she's going as hard as she can. And Kirk says, I need, I, I need, I need more power. I need you to find more power. And Scotty says, Yes, Captain. Uh, I need you to be Scotty. I need you to be my Scotty. Can you be my Scotty? And the kid is like, yeah, like he's so inspired. Like, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, and he picks up his little tools that he, he goes to and Hunter just storms out of the room. Like hope that works. Well, well, Hunter, Hunter gives, Hunter gives him what's, what's this wonderful line where, where he says, basically, if, if you don't do this, billions of people are going to die. I know it's a <laughs> deal, but can you handle it? And in that moment watching it, I was like, this character is now the most important character He's it. in the film and in the world. If he, and if he I almost expected the there to be a line where Denzel was like, you are now the most important person in the world. <laughs> His job for the rest of the movie is basically to sweat and to, to stutter wildly as, as he's just overcome with the adrenaline of trying to save billions of people. That's right. Exactly at that moment is when uh, Captain Ramsey and, and uh, Gandolfini and the rest of them storm the bridge with their weapons drawn. They seize back command of the bridge. They arrest Cobb. And, and I think it's, it, I think it's uh, uh, the captain who looks at him and, and basically says, of all the people, you know, mm-hmm. this, this was his guy that he thought he could count on and he couldn't count on him. And you get this nonverbal moment between Hunter and Webbs. Yeah, that for me, when I saw that in the film and I just muttered, to Brute. Like it's, and I almost expected Hunter as an Ivy Leaguer to just straight up say that. And Webbs knows he fed up. You can see it all over his face. He really, at that moment, doubts whether he has actually made the right decision. Yeah. And off they go. And off they go. And it's right then that this little conversation in the back hallway with Ravetti pays off because you've got Hunter and, and the people who followed him locked away in the officer's mess, the same way that the captain was locked away in his state quarters. And uh, I'll call this the return of the Silver Surfer. The return of the Silver Surfer. Ravetti walks up to the door pretending like he's going to the head. And the, the guy who, is ha- who he was having the uh, Silver Surfer conversation is the guy that's guarding the door, gives him grief for uh, being out in the hallway with, without authorization. And uh, Ravetti turns turns around and breaks the guy's nose, just smacks him <laughs> with his own beautiful. weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, uh, it's, it's a win for comic book fans. It's just a win for everybody on the side of the good guys. And then he goes in and he busts out his buddies, busts them out. Everybody grabs whatever weapons were left in that weapons cabinet. Apparently there was a lot more. And so they, they all get themselves weapons. And instead of going right to the bridge to, to try to take it back, uh, Hunter calls Webs. He calls his buddy who he's just had this moment of betrayal with, who's now back in, in weapons control and says, do not do this. You're going to blow up millions of people. We could be wrong. We got to find this out. You got a duty to do this. Yep. He then makes a second phone call back to Vossler. Vossler, Scotty. How's is, the radio coming, man? How's the radio yeah, he, coming? At this point, he just starts calling him Scotty. Yeah, he's called him Scotty. He says, Scotty, this is Kirk. How's, how's, how's my, my dilithium crystals? And, and, basically, and basically just gets the nonverbal, uh, and, a, and <laughs> then the like, phone hangs up. You better than that. And, he even asked, he says, how much time do you need? And Fossler says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. 
And, and then Hunter says, how much time can I give you? And our Vossler hangs up on him. <laughs> he doesn't even have time for like, this. And he goes back to sweating over his, his tiny tools. So they're left with um, one option. They're left with one option at that point, which is, okay, we got to hurry up to the bridge and get there before Ramsey can fire. Because right at that moment, Ramsey has gotten the boat to launch depth. The boat is hovering. They are ready to fire. The only thing that has to happen now is he has to put his key in the little slot in the uh, console, which he does. And he's got to call Webs in weapons control and have him open a safe, which only Webs knows the combination to. It's basically this guy's, he's, he's basically a human key. And inside the safe is the big the trigger. And uh, he says, calling all cars, calling all cars. Webs, can you, can you please open the safe? And there's this long delay where Webs is weighing his options. And he decides not to open the safe. And he decides not to open the safe. And he doesn't do it verbally. It's not like, nah, I'm not going to open the safe. He just does nothing. He does nothing. He does and nothing. Ramsey is not happy with that answer. No. Ramsey is forced at that point to basically lock his key into the console on the bridge to rush him and, and a bunch of people back to weapons control where he begins to threaten Webs with, you need, you need to do this now, you need to do this now, and pulls a gun on him. This is when Ramsey truly goes off yeah. the rails and puts a gun to Webs's head. And Webs is prepared at this moment. He, he finds his principles and is prepared to die for them. He realizes that he has done the wrong thing and now wants to make it right. Ramsey, perceiving that Webs will die for his own cause, uh, then turns to Ensign number five and puts him up against a wall. It's a red shirt. Fine. He turns and finds a red shirt. and He and, finds a red shirt and, and puts a gun up against out. his head yeah. and says, how about I blow his brains out right. if you don't comply? Well, you can't You can't um, shoot the guy in the head who has the combination in his head. That, fin right. that finally occurs to the captain that you can't do that. You kind of need that guy. That's right. So he persuades Webs to comply. Right. At this point, proceeding with the Star Trek analogies, Hunter and his crew are in the Jeffries tubes, <laughs> making their way back up to the bridge. We've sort of got these these simultaneous actions happening, and Webs, you know, sees this this poor ensign with the gun against his head, who it really looks like Ramsey could off just to make a point. Webs finally says, "Fine, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll I'll do it." He opens the safe. Ramsey reaches in grabs the firing trigger and gets ready to fire one. And right at that moment is when Hunter reaches the bridge, essentially, essentially like, no, dives, and and, <laughs> dives across the bridge and pulls the key out just in time, right as, uh, right as Ramsey's trying to push the button. Click, 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 click. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. No bigger way to piss off uh, the, the captain than for his missile not to fire. He immediately knows what happened. He knows that it's Hunter. Back they go, right? Heading toward the bridge to try to get up there to, to take it back from Hunter. And when he gets back to Hunter, it, we basically end up in a standoff. That's that's yep. where we are. Yep. Ramsey's got his guys. Hunter's got his guys. And at this point, Cobb is fully on Hunter's side. Like, fuck the rule book. Like, he, it's very clear to him that Ramsey is morally bankrupt. Yep. Everybody's pointing guns at everyone else. Everyone in this small metal tube, a thousand feet underwater is pointing guns at one another because that's how men resolve problems. That's how we resolve problems. Yeah. Did I mention there's not a single woman woman in this cast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at this moment, the radio comes back online. It does because there it sputters back online. It starts to sputter. 
right? It's, there's, right. there's even a start to here because we're, we're not even sputtering really at this point. We're just starting, like Vossler is, he's hit the right wire to the right wire and stuff is, is starting to come through. It looks like they may, may, may be able to get a message in time, but maybe not. And so what happens is Ramsey at first demands his missile key back. Give me the missile key. And Hunter won't do it. He's got this great moment where he takes it, takes it out of his pocket. And with the uh, with great conviction. With great conviction, yeah. Takes it, puts it around his own neck, and Ramsey hauls off and bloodies his nose. And and Hunter doesn't move, and he does it again. And Hunter yep. still doesn't move. It's right then that Ramsey realizes, without there being just some sort of like, you know, a Reservoir Dogs ending to this thing, he's he's not going to be able to get the key back without there being violence, and it may not work. And he still wants to launch the missile. And so the best way he he can kind of come up with to do this is, okay, all right, we'll wait for your message but you only have three minutes to get this radio fixed for us to get the message. Let's see what it says. And then if you're wrong, God help you. He doesn't say I'm going to kill you at the end of this three minutes, but it makes it very clear that by hook or by crook, that key is coming off of his neck. Failing that he's on, on your head, be it basically. Right. right. Uh, on, yeah. The consequences. If, if you, if, and if Hunter you, basically says same. Yeah. He says, if I, if I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all. That's right. God, it's such a, and it's such a good line, such Such a good delivery. So they wait, they sit and wait and they do something, which seems to me also extremely inadvisable inside a submarine. (laughs) They light up a cigar, Ramsey lights up a cigar and there he tries to have this sort of forced moment, this return to civility, uh, this callback to when right before they, they descended where they've got, what else are they going to do? They have a little chat. So if you go back, if you go back to their very first time we saw them together, when Ramsey was interviewing Hunter essentially for the job, my my exo has appendicitis, I need a new exo. One of the things he asked him is, "What do you do in your spare time?" And Hunter replies, "I ride horses." Oh, really? You ride horses? Uh, what do you What do you ride? I ride Arabians and so on. They have this horse conversation, which basically they just pick back up in this mm-hmm. moment. They're sitting down across he, from one another. Ramsey even begins it by saying, "Speaking of horses." Speaking of horses. Yeah. As if, as Have if you heard nothing of happened audience? in between those two moments, they're sitting across from each other as they were before. We just pick the conversation back up. And in this moment, you get this conversation, the least expected conversation, I think, in this moment you possibly could have, which is about Lippin's Honor Stallions, those sort of yes. show horses and, and a disagreement between them over, are they from Portugal or Spain? And are they black or white? And if you're not familiar with Lippin's Honor Stallions, which... Hackman repeatedly mispronounces and drives me, it drives me insane <laughs> the entire movie. He, I, what does he say? He says, Lippitz, Lippitz honor. He like adds a T in there. It's just a Z. Lip is honor science. Yes. Uh, there are these beautiful white horses that are trained essentially to dance. If you go to YouTube and you look up Lippitz honor stallions, they do these elaborate, gorgeous show dances. Like it's this beautiful call. And it's, it's interesting to me that they're discussing something so, highbrow (laughs) so refined in this gritty moment where everyone's bleeding and sweating and the end of the world is on the line we come back to this point that you had made earlier which is there is this unspoken not just boss and underling sort of dynamic and not just intellectual versus blue collar dynamic there's a racial dynamic and and this yep. conversation plays that out in a in a really interesting way so it's acknowledged that the horses are white the adult horses are white they both agree on that but Denzel Washington says did you know that when they're born they're black and they only become white as they become older and also sir they're not from Spain they're from Portugal 
And Hackman disagrees with both points, basically. He says, that doesn't sound right. It does not sound right. How would they be born black? And also, they're clearly from Spain. Yeah. And Washington just, he gets this look on his face where he's like, this white (laughs) telling me this is what I do. And this guy's telling me, like, I don't know. Okay, what can I do? He's got the guns. (laughs) (laughs) And this concludes the family portion of our show. (laughs) While they are having the the highbrow intellectual conversation, poor Vossler is back trying to save the world. Poor Scotty is back trying to save the world. And Right at the end of this conversation, as the seconds are ticking down to, to global annihilation, he connects, you know, lead A to, to, to port B and, and manages the right connection. And we get an EAM coming through. We finally get the full text of the EAM, which we as an audience are not allowed to see at that point. We, we see that he's thrilled that it came through, but we don't. We sort of have poker faces from everybody else. And so we go through this whole procedure that's set up before of we take the EAM and we open the safe and we find the code word and does the code word match? And can we repeat that to each other? And then we walk it all the way up to the captain and the XO. Yeah, it's suddenly this like return to return to civility and procedures. But they need that in this moment. They need that. They need structure. They need something. Yes. And this is what they all know. This is what they all know. And and so every everybody kind of goes back to what they know. And in this moment, the EAM is handed to Ramsey. He looks at it. He looks to Hunter. Hunter takes it, looks at it. No, no. Hunter looks at it. Sorry. Hunter looks at Ramsey. it first. Right. Make sure it's authentic as he is supposed to do. He says, I concur. I concur. Hands it to Ramsey. Ramsey looks at it. I concur. It's authentic. And you have this pregnant pause where have we actually confirmed that we're at war and we're going to be launching missiles or, you know, what, what's going to happen. And it's at that moment that Ramsey looks over, asks for the radio to go to the one MC so that he can address the entire submarine crew of the Alabama. (laughs) And I'm leaving my own pregnant pause there because what happens? Stand down, stand Stand down, down. stand down. Hunter was right the entire time. The entire mutiny, uh, counter mutiny thing that went on was unnecessary because Mm -hmm. none of this had to happen. No, and in in Hunter's moment of vindication, Ramsey, recognizing his failure, retires to his stateroom. Yeah. He he concedes defeat. He could say, and it's the only it's the only time in the movie he has done anything remotely like that. And when only when only when proven in front of God and everybody with a piece of paper in front of him, that's authentic in a way that he understands to be authentic which is that it's gone through this chain of command and we've done the things that he knows how to do. It's not just uh, Hunter telling him so. At that moment, he's able to say, okay, I concede. He hands over the missile key to Hunter. He gives him command of the boat. He retires to bed. You see Hunter Hunter holds up the EAM to the camera, basically. <laughs> you see the EAM says that Rodchenko has unconditionally surrendered. He's unconditionally surrendered. Uh, so not only, like, it wasn't just some, like, small victory. Like, the, the war is over. Right. Uh, and then you get that cut to the CNN anchor. Yes. Explain, just to, like, reground us in real-world events, explaining that, like, Rodchenko has surrendered. And as far as the rest of the world knows, none of this has occurred. Right. Nobody knows that they came to the brink of nuclear annihilation. Which is a, I'm certain uh, how it went down with the Q Cuban Missile Crisis, right? But we, we got we got way closer than anybody ever knew, and and things just happened to work out, which was great. And I am I imagine that this sort of thing has happened in some other format since then. That of things happening that none of us know about. How close we've come to annihilation. I'm sure this is a right. Thing. Oh, yeah. It's and, better that we don't. <laughs> and they sail back to port, where everything's fine. Where everything's fine. Everything's fine. And there are no more moral ambiguities. <laughs> 
And we we could end the movie there. That that is the that is you the could. point where where the movie could end. But you get this nice little tag at the end, which is is back at Pearl Harbor. They are in some sort of after action hearing, and Ramsey has made a recommendation, which Hunter is very very suspect of, rightly so. And he has made it to Rear Admiral Anderson, and we get a cameo by Jason Robards playing Rear Admiral Anderson, who says, uh, "You're both right. You're both wrong." both of you we don't know what to do with you guys we don't know what to do with you guys he says (laughs) ramsey's made a recommendation do you have a problem with it and uh hunter's like yeah yeah, i might what is it and we get to end the movie with ramsey having uh requested early retirement which has been granted and having recommended hunter to get his next command at the earliest possible convenience hunter's surprised by this but i wasn't like because ultimately ramsey is in a twisted way a man of principle he recognizes that he has been bested um and this is the concession that he is making and so then they have this final moment outside the courthouse i guess where ramsey says basically like don't thank me you earned it uh, also, I looked into it, and you're right, with the Sanders Stallions are from Portugal. No. And Jason Robards, having told them just moments before, y'all have created a mess, and, <laughs> and we're going to be cleaning this thing up for years to come. Forever. Forever. Thank you very much. But for now, you can both go on your merry way. They go outside. They shake hands as best as they're able to shake hands in this moment and head their opposite ways. And we finish the movie as we started it with a card on the screen um, that just lets us know that as of January 1996, primary authority and ability to fire nuclear missiles will no longer rest with U.S. submarine commanders. It is going to rest with the president of the United States, which in 1995 was a comforting thing, maybe. Maybe not so much in like 2020. And I, and, I, and I like that we needed to put that there on the end just to, so we just don't. Just so you all know. Just so you all so know. know. We, we don't send the audience home like weeping and gnashing of teeth at any moment. That some There's rogue not some captain. guy in the, Indian Ocean, in the yeah. Indian Ocean right now who's going to decide to blow us all up. Exactly. And that's Crimson Tide. That's, that is a, a heck of a playing out of a lot of, I think, submarine tropes that had come before, but also establishing its own tropes that are going to bleed over into essentially every submarine movie that's made from that point forward. And we'll, we'll I'm sure, talk about that in other episodes in this season. But as a general rule, what'd you think? Oh, I liked it. I, I went into it with basically no expectations. I knew very little about the film. I knew that I appreciated all of the actors in the film. I know who Tony Scott was. But, you know, I, I kind of expected another popcorn-y Air Force One yeah. type of film that was going to be so, so ridiculous that it was maybe kind of funny, something I could mock a little bit, sort of MST3K as I went through. I, I think I expected something a little cheesier. And um, while it, there were certainly levels of absurdity and actual melodrama, I mean, if you think uh-huh. about what the word melodrama is, it's it's drama supported by music. There are very few moments of the film that don't have a soundtrack. The whole thing is just like, it's constant escalation. It's a music video. It is a music video. Um, there, there are elements of it that are so over the top. I never really found anything to actually mock or, or you know, nothing to ridicule. I, I felt that it was well acted and well timed. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was interesting. It was, it was fun. It was just a really fun uh, action drama. I really enjoyed it. I find that that's the descriptor I tend to give it to is it's fun. It, it yeah. is, it's a movie about incredibly serious things that somehow was made in such a way that I find myself when I watch this film, like out loud going, yeah, you know, that, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And I, it surprised even me because I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie 
dozens of times. You know, I, yeah. I, I can probably quote it from end to end. It's one of my one of my favorite action films. And even still watching it in preparation for this show, I'm watching it with a smile from ear to ear and going, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's nuclear holocaust. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's a well put together movie. I was a little uncomfortable with how it sort of rekindled that mid nineties nostalgia for the military. Not like not quite nationalism, but isn't it nationalism of like that the go get them blue angel fireworks, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. And I was just there were moments where where you yeah. do when you want to pump your fist in the air. It was but you're basically watching your own fist, like oh no, there it goes. <laughs> it's basically like the evil Knieveling of the military, like. It's showing the stunts and the coolest stuff they do. And it's basically like a recruitment film for, it's like a mm-hmm. really well-made recruitment film, but it's a really entertaining recruitment film, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, there's oh, yeah. A, and there's kind of a reason for that, which is we alluded to it earlier, which is that the, the makeup of the people who made this movie was basically like, they just bust the crew from Top Gun over to a different set and ask them to make yeah. Crimson Tide. You, Pretty much. You've got the director and the producers and you've got, you've got, yeah, except for the, the stars, you know, of the movie, we changed those out. But yeah. other than that, you know, kind of the same thing. Yeah. And the, and part of the reason that this got made was because when Simpson and Bruckheimer, who are the producers on this film, made Top Gun, they did it with the blessing of the U.S. Navy. U.S. Navy said, right. oh, you're going to make a movie about the, the coolest parts of uh, fighter pilots? Yeah, we need some more of those. Make this movie. It's going to make them look amazing. And we're going to get a ton of people like applying for the Navy. And sure enough, what happened? They it's exact, did. It's exactly what happened. Oh. And so I think Bruckheimer and Simpson looked at this thing and went, okay, we did it with fighter jets. What else do they have? They have submarines. Let's make a submarine <laughs> movie. The Navy will be behind us. We'll make a movie. It'll be, it'll be the top gun of submarines. The problem is that when the Navy discovers that uh, the film is about one of their own kind of losing their marbles and maybe launching a Ooh. nuclear war, that doesn't sit well. That doesn't sit well. Maverick never launched a nuclear war. So the Navy, the Navy was not cool with helping on this one. So they had to make it without the help, but uh, they figured some workarounds out and it turned out to be the movie it is. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's it. That's what you love. That's what I got. That's I, all, I, folks. I'll give you a piece of trivia. I'll give you a piece of trivia. So U.S. Navy doesn't help them, right? Well, you can't make a submarine movie without shots of submarines. That's and right. so, so where do you go for shots of submarines? I don't know where do you go. France. France? You go to France. They, they I was about to say to, like Lucasfilm. We could go to Lucasfilm. They for, for part of it. For part of it, they went to the French Navy, who had, I think, if I remember this correctly, had purchased a decommissioned U.S. sub um, that was sort of mm. taken apart. So they were able to shoot the exteriors, like that whole little duck speech in the rain and all that is standing outside of this submarine. And that conning tower that's on the top of it is like, it's just a balsa wood, you know, mock up because that thing is gone. So the outsides, they were able to use a, a U.S. Navy sub, just one purchased by the French. And then the cool shots of the submarine uh, submerging in the beginning, you know, where they're having this conversation on the conning tower and the sun's going down. The Navy did not allow them to shoot that. But what, what Simpson and Bruckheimer and Tony Scott did was they basically just parked a crew outside of port at Pearl Harbor and waited for a sub to leave. And when the sub left, it just happened to be the USS Alabama. <gasps> and they 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 trailed it with boats. They flew a helicopter over it. It's in public space. And so they were able to film all of this and got these badass shots of the of the. They're like, we're just taking B-roll. Yeah. We're just taking B-roll. Just taking B-roll? What? What are you, what are you no. gonna do? So this so is, this, this is, is everyone's ocean. It's it's everyone's what? ocean. That's that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's, and that's so how they nice. did. It. So yeah, inventive people do inventive things. In this way, they were able to you know make Crimson Tide without Navy help. But I still think it probably achieved the same goal. Uh, I think which, it did, which was getting people to want to ride around in a tin can under the ocean and a boat. A, yeah, under months at a time. <laughs> and with that, let's take a break. What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife Jennifer Dassel explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast, that's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast, subscribe for Season 9 now. You're listening to Subgenre, and we're talking Crimson Tide with Charlotte Moore. It's time for the deep dive. In today's deep dive, let's talk a little bit about Charlotte herself. More specifically, your your family. Now, okay. this was only sort of known to me for a while, and I kind of forgot it, and then I remembered it again uh, for, for this show, and then I went looking and went, holy crap, you, mm-hmm. you've kind of got some royalty in your family movie-wise. Mm-hmm. I do. My great-grandfather was Charles Brackett. He was the co-writer on a little film you might have heard of called Sunset Boulevard. He won four Oscars, one of which was a Lifetime Achievement Award, but three that he won for the films that he made were for Sunset Boulevard, The Lost Weekend, and Titanic. Um, the original Titanic, not, <laughs> uh, not the reboot. It was the one that was produced in the 50s. And I think he was a producer, not a writer on that. So he some he won for writing, some he won for producing. He also was involved with The King and I, who's a producer on that one. And he was a novelist. I mean, he did, he did all kinds of stuff. And actually, my full name is Charlotte Elizabeth Brackett Moore. It's a family name. Uh, so in a way, I too am Charlie Brackett. And yet... I've seen so very few films. <laughs> I shame my lineage. And, but, it's, uh, yeah. and the films that the films that Charles Brackett made. I mean, you you mentioned the ones that he won his Oscars for, which, by mm-hmm. the way, it was I believe it was 
for writing on Titanic that he did win the Oscar. Um, okay. But a, a couple of others that, you know, hey, you might have heard of them, films like Nanachka. Uh, yeah, uh, that one's so good. So right? funny. And the, the guy that he, he worked with primarily was Billy Wilder. Yeah, um, a small and name. They sort of they sort of famously had a, a falling out eventually they had a very uh, contentious relationship for for a lot of their their partnership but i mean beautiful movies came out of it i am two degrees separated from charles brackett and that is something i'm going to brag about i think is what that's i think be. you held one of his oscars didn't you oh my, my god i did a long time ago work. yes a long yeah. time ago i i got to actually hold one of the oscars and if i do you remember which film that was for i don't remember was I don't, it, it I wasn't don't sunset remember. boulevard was it I don't think so. I, I don't think so. And I, because we, whatever got it was, three of, we've got three of them in the family. We've kept two at my house and I don't remember what they were for. Whatever it was, I held a friggin' Oscar. It's, yeah. It's the, yeah. It's one the of the old timey ones. That's from right. Like the fifties. That's right. One of the, yeah. the only time in my life I'm going to do that, by the way, as, as much yeah. as I kid myself, <laughs> the only time in my life I'm going to hold the Oscar is when you it's hand one cool. to me, which is great. The funny thing about those Oscars, we had them restored several years ago. We, we made friends with a really great guy who's uh, an archivist at the Academy and he helped my dad go through the steps to restore the Oscars. But until that point, they were really they were kind of gathering dust in our living room. They were just like, we had all of like tchotchkes and shit. There's the bookshelf and there's the TV yeah. and there's some like random shit and there are a couple of Oscars. That are <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, that is, not an un, that is not an uncommon story that, that, that Oscars yeah. are used as doorstops or, or Oscars yeah. are used as paperweights or whatever. It's amazing to me, but you know, if you got one, you do it, do with it what you want to. They, but they take the Stanley cup and drink, you know, eat soup out of it or whatever. So you can do whatever you want to with your Oscar. Yeah, we just, we, the ours were basically just props in our living room. And uh, I really sort of took them for granted for a really long time. Which kind of gets me to the other thing I want to talk about, which is you are not a movie person. No. And that's, I'm not, not a movie person. I don't avoid movies. I don't dislike movies. Right, right. But you're the level of movie watching that I grew up with, I think probably is in direct opposition to the level of movie watching that you grew up with. Is that somewhat fair to oh, say? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And that surprises me. Um, yeah. But it's very interesting to talk movies with someone who is sort of like, yeah, I'm not really a movie person. I know. And it's part of it is just because of who I am innately. I mean, when I had free time as a young kid, I was either using that time to read books or like climb trees. I just wasn't parking myself in front of movies. Um, when I Where did got, you, when did you grow oh, up? The fifties? You were you were reading books and climbing trees. <laughs> I was reading Where? books and climbing trees. Um, I don't know. I it was one of those things where like I went to to middle school in the mid nineties and like I'd been listening to my dad's music. Uh like the very first the very first concert I ever went to was a Peter Paul and Mary concert. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. And when I went to middle school, the day Kurt Cobain killed himself and all the kids at school were really sad. Like I didn't know who Nirvana was. Like I didn't know why everyone was upset. I had this really insular little life that I lived of just like books and tree climbing. And my TV time was fairly monitored. I wasn't really allowed to be in front of the television for hours and hours at a time. At a certain point, my mom would come and turn it off. And when we were going to watch movies, it was always like a a family affair. We all pile in the car and yeah. go see whatever movie my parents had picked. 
And then by the time I was a teenager, I was in boarding school. I didn't have a car. I, yeah. If I'd had a car, I wouldn't have had access to anywhere. So I wasn't like going to movie theaters a lot. I don't know. It was just one of those things that just didn't, didn't happen. So what, what that feels like to me, and I think I'm accurate in saying this, is that you had a much more wholesome uh <laughs> childhood than perhaps I did in that in that you were you were getting the chance to make your brain bigger versus making it mush like me and watching all these movies which seems probably like as uh, as good a time as any to play you can't handle the truth this is the quiz portion of the show where I ask you ridiculous questions and see if you can answer them for an even more ridiculous prize. And today, uh, Charlotte Moore, you are playing for a Lipizzaner stallion that can deal cards. Hell yeah. Do I have to put a cattle prod up the test? I mean, what you do in the privacy of your own home, <laughs> I'm not going to question. Thank you. Are, are this you is America. <laughs> if you need a hint, let me know. But are you ready to play? I was born ready. Here we go. Question one. Actor Denzel Hayes Washington Jr., known in Hollywood as Denzel Washington, takes his full name from his father, Denzel H. Washington Sr. Who is his father named after? Is it A, John Denzel, a 16th century estate owner in Cornwall, England, who was later named Sergeant at Law and Attorney General to the Queen Consort Elizabeth of York? Is it B, the doctor who delivered him, who happened to be named Dr. Denzel? Or is it C, the Denzel, an early but largely unremembered competitor to the Porsche motor car? God, the first option is so specific, but I'm going to go with B. I have a good feeling about B. You're going with B, the doctor who delivered him, Dr. Denzel? With the doctor who delivered him. That is correct. The doctor who delivered Denzel H. Washington Sr. was named Dr. Denzel. My gut with that is that like people didn't used to really plan their kids' names right. that much. You know, it was just like, who are you? All right, that's my kid. Yeah, <laughs> like, it was either you name your kid after someone else already in your family or like whoever was there. Well, very right. good, Charlotte. You've you got one. We've got two more to go. Let's do number two. Gene Hackman was reluctant to accept the iconic role of Lex Luthor in Superman the movie, which came out in 1978 because he didn't want to shave off his mustache. Its director, Richard Donner, offered to shave his mustache in solidarity if Hackman would accept. So Hackman agreed and shaved only to discover what? Was it A, Richard Donner's mustache was a glued-on phony, B, he would have to then regrow the mustache due to script rewrites, or C, that he was never able to grow proper facial hair again? I'm going to go with C just because I don't remember ever seeing Gene Hackman with facial hair in any film after that. So your answer is C, that he was never able to grow proper facial hair again. It sounds silly, but yes, that's what I'm going with. I'm sorry. Ah. No, no. The answer was actually A, that Richard Donner had a glued on fake mustache to convince uh, Gene Hackman to shave his. That that liar, that liar, liar, Richard Donner. But it worked. Gene Hackman shaved the mustache. He played Lex Luthor. And uh, that's why we have that killer role. Well, that's okay. Okay. You've got one more chance to to get your two out of three here. So uh, let's try question number three. Okay. Early on, on Crimson Tide, uncredited writer and directing auteur Quentin Tarantino worked at the Manhattan Beach Video Store Video Archives, during which he wrote several of his famous films, including Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, and Natural Born Killers. When that store finally closed years later, what did he take as a memento? Was it A, he had the store's giant neon sign attached to the top of his Malibu mansion? B, he bought the rights to the name Video Archives and now uses it in all his films? Or C, he purchased the store's entire 8,000 title video inventory, preferring them to streaming services. 
I'm angry because I feel like I've heard this anecdote and I still don't remember the answer. You want a hint? Yes. I mean, that's one way to avoid paying late fees. I guess C. That is correct. You have gotten two out of three on You Can't Handle the Truth. Yes, he actually did. Years later, when uh, when Video Archive was closing down, he said, you know what? I'm just going to buy everything. I got that kind of money, bought the entitled inventory, and uh, supposedly still has them in his possession to this day because he doesn't want to use the Netflix. I'm really happy for him. I, I am very happy for him. I am extra happy for you having won yes. the, Lip- the Lipazon or Stallion that can deal cards. Yay. Watch for that in the mail. I'm certain it won't be delayed in getting to you. Now, I I think you've got a question for me, though. Because you love Gene Hackman so very much. Here's what I will give you. Gene Hackman was originally supposed to play a leading role in which of these sitcoms? A, Mike Brady in The Brady Bunch. B, Tony Nelson in I Dream of Jeannie. Or C, the character Gene Hartman in the unproduced Gene Hackman show. We've got two existing shows and we've got one that didn't exist that he was supposed to play the character. If we think about Lex Luthor, like Lex Luthor had sort of the Mike Brady perm. Gene Hackman didn't, but the character did. And so I can mm-hmm. sort, I can sort you, because that, that was the hair piece he put on. So I can sort of see it. So yeah, maybe yeah. Mike Brady. B was to play Tony Nelson. Tony Nelson and I Dream of Jeannie. I can see uh-huh. the gruffness sort of being something that a casting director would look at and go, oh yeah, he feels like a military guy. But at the same time, they, they would need somebody that could show heart to Jeannie, which is why they ended up with um, JR from Dallas. What's that guy's name? I can't remember. Uh, we'll figure it out later, but yeah. they ended up with him playing it. So I kind of think that's not it. And the last one is there was going to be a Gene Hackman show and he was going to play a, a character named Gene Hartman because you know that's G- how they did in a, those like... Right. I think my answer, as ridiculous as it sounds, I think my answer is A, Mike Brady. You are correct, sir. Yay! You were correct. And the only, the reason that he wasn't cast was because he was still relatively unknown at the time. Holy they just, cow. They just, but it turned out okay for him. He still ended up having a career. I don't know if you know that. But, I, uh, I, I was unfamiliar with the, with the career of Gene Hackman. He almost now. was Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch. That would have. Gene Hackman. Can someone please make this? <laughs> <laughs> just, but not like Gene Hackman as Mike Brady, but like Gene Hackman from Crimson Tide as Mike Brady. Like that, <laughs> that's the show that I want to watch. Yeah. That, that would be fantastic. I can't, I can't believe it that I, I actually got my question right. That is a rare occurrence. I'm really proud of you. I thank you. I'm very proud of you. Uh, and, and I think we can, <laughs> I think we can call that maybe a, a, a successful, you can't handle the truth. What do you think? I think we can handle the I truth. think we can, The truth too. has been handled. Oh, we did it. We did it. We did it. I guess that means it's time for Rave Rental or Refund. Rave Rental or Refund is where we make our final thumbs up, thumbs down call on the film. Is it a rave? Would we go see it in the theater and pay good money? Is it a rental? Are we waiting for the red box? Or is it a refund? Give me my money back right now. Charlotte Moore. I'll give it a rental. Primarily because that is how I did end up watching it. Uh, and I can't really say what mid-90s me would have done, given the option. If it was playing at the Alamo as a uh, sort of like a nostalgia night, it's not It's not high art. Fair assessment. I'm giving it a rental. It's entertaining. It's entertaining. You know, if you want to watch it in your gym jam. I got to go with Rave. This this is, and maybe it's just because it came out at a, at a certain time in my life, but it's a movie that A, has stuck with me. But I think even at the time I would have went, you know, Submarines and Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. Oh, hell yeah. I'm going to go see that in the theater. So I'm giving it a <laughs> Rave. So uh, thanks for coming. I had a great time yeah. doing this. 
I'm happy to be here. And you know what? If for some reason Crimson Tide does come back to theaters and you want to go see it in a theater and you've got an extra ticket, I will come along. Oh man, we're doing Just it. You know. We're doing it. I will enjoy that. It's a date. We're that doing it. That would be good. I feel like I understand talking about films. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I did the thing. Tiny boat it. films. <laughs> We've been talking Crimson Tide with Charlotte Moore. We could do this all night, but we got to wrap it up. Charlotte, tell the people about yourself, where they can find you and what you're doing. I am making short educational videos in my bathroom, in my car, in my living room. Uh, you can find me on TikTok as Cavatica, C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A. You can find me on Instagram as the same and Twitter as C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A. A-T, Cavada Cat. I'm making stuff for the kids. They started calling me Science Mom or Science Aunt. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure which one I prefer, but uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing. Well, thank you, Science Mom, <laughs> Science Aunt, for, uh, for talking Crimson Tide. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Charlotte Moore. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support us with a donation and visit our website at subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. We'll welcome you back soon for our next episode. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki. Oh.